0: Hello, and welcome to SWP TV, the broadcast channel of the Socialist Workers' Party. We're living in truly unprecedented and unsettling times. For over six months now, a global pandemic has ripped through our communities. By the end of September, the World Health Organization was reporting that there have been more than 33 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and over one million people have died as a result of it. The true figure is almost certainly far higher than that. The devastating impact of coronavirus has transformed our city centers into ghost towns and forced us to live in isolated bubbles, separated from our friends, our families, our loved ones, even as so many of them have fallen ill, and have died as a result of the disease. The fact that Boris Johnson, Jair Bolsonaro, and now even Donald Trump have contracted coronavirus shows it can infect anybody. The disproportionate effect that it has had upon people from black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities shows that we're not all in it together, however. It's all the more remarkable then, that in the midst of this catastrophe, millions of people erupted onto the streets in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis on the 25th of May by a police officer from that force. In the United States alone, up to 26 million people protested in the first few weeks and those demonstrations continue Huge protests occurred, for example, when it was announced to nobody's surprise, but of course to widespread anger, that nobody was going to be charged in response to the fatal shooting, the fatal killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. What's been equally remarkable has been the diversity of those demonstrations, You may be aware that Portland, Oregon has been the site of sustained protests for several months now. 70% of its residents are white. Indeed, it's the whitest big city in the United States. And neither have those protests, neither have those phenomena been limited to the United States. There have been mass, diverse protests right across the world, including here in Britain, and equally impressively, many smaller, socially distanced demonstrations in small towns and villages. Inevitably, the protests couldn't continue on the same scale indefinitely, but it's clear that those involved are determined to ensure that what we've been witnessing has been the resurgence of a radical movement, not simply a brief, but exhilarating, and passing moment. This new pamphlet, Does Privilege Explain Racism? recognizes the burning desire for change that we have seen in the protests and it suggests that there are many sharp questions that have been posed by this new wave of struggle. My name is Brian Richardson and I'm delighted to be joined by the authors of the pamphlet, Esme Tunara, Yuri Prasad, Ken Olende, and Wayman Bennett. Alongside them are two young activists who have been involved in the protests in London, Nadia Ibrahim and Elizabeth Adolfo. So without further ado, let's turn to consider some of the issues that have been raised And Yuri, if I can start with you. Hi, Brian. Good evening, Yuri. And can I ask you this? Why did you think it was necessary to produce this pamphlet at this moment?
1: The most important reason, Brian, is the huge wave of protests that you described um, across the US, across Britain, and Indeed, across the world, um, it's brought millions of people into struggle, many of which for the first time. And there is now a level of questioning about the way society is organized and why racism persists as such a strong feature of it that has not happened on this scale since the late 1960s. So that was the the primary reason why we thought we should write. Um, people are asking really vital questions about the way stereotypes are normalized, the way we are taught in schools and colleges, the way we're policed, the justice system, the inequalities in health and living standards that have been revealed by COVID, as you mentioned. And people are really looking seriously for answers to those, to those questions. Now, some of these questions are very long standing issues for anti-racists, but in the current climate, they take on a new, a new form. I mean, and I think if we think of Concepts like uh, white privilege, it's become very much part of the common sense of the movement. But it's both an old idea that was born out of the surge of identity politics in U.S. universities universities primarily in the 1980s, but also it's at the same time, a new idea in the sense that people are increasingly using it to describe the way that racism disadvantages black and Asian people in particular. Um, and it, it exposes the, the the way people's lives are are stunted and limited uh, by, by racism, and how it affects what people feel they can take for granted uh, and what they don't have to think about. So that the the concept itself is has has at least two two major strands that we wanted to try and uh, deal with. And what we also wanted to do is engage with the arguments that arise out of the the different phenomena and provide some revolutionary socialist arguments in in response. So that was the, the, the key reasons why we thought it was worthwhile to produce a pamphlet.
0: do want to engage there's already over 300 people who are watching this broadcast uh, which is fantastic certainly encourage those of you who are already tuned in to carry on sharing it with your friends your family your workmates and so on because we want many more people as many people as possible to to participate and 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 hear why this is such an important new Publication. Yui, let's carry on. Um, you mentioned the term privilege you, and you examine concepts of privilege in the pamphlet and the theories that lie behind it. Uh, we're going to go on to discuss that in some detail shortly. But let me just ask you this what other debates are covered in the pamphlet?
1: Yeah, uh, we wanted to look at uh, issues, important issues around questions of unconscious bias and about whether unconscious bias can explain the phenomena of racism. Um, it takes a detailed look at the way people's ideas about race and sometimes a complete lack of awareness of race and racism impacts uh, and the way those ideas are formed. And it takes um, quite a, what you might describe as quite a robust approach to the implicit bias micro-industry that seems to have uh, uh, grown up and we, we, we you know we expose that argument to quite a degree of, uh, 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 of scrutiny we also look at the concept of intersectionality which is an attempt to try and understand the way different forms of oppression uh for example racism and women's oppression uh, are linked um what they have in common uh, but the way in which people who experience both forms of oppression suffer something unique as a result um we grapple with the concept of identity and the way it relates to relate uh, to race, and we look at the extent to which identity can form and um, perform a function in the fight for liberation. Um, a, a very important question, I think, in the context of Black Lives Matter, and we answer so we answer some concrete questions that have arisen in the Black Lives Matter movement, such as whether the movement should solely focus on African-Caribbean experience of racism, or should it embrace wider concepts of political blackness? Um, And there's a discussion also around the question of cultural appropriation. So in all the chapters, we try and outline what a Marxist understanding should be. So we examine the way class divides people, even people who are impressed in similar ways, but why class also has the potential to break down some of the terrible barriers uh, that that divide us. So those are the the key things that we're trying to address in the in the pamphlet, program.
0: Thanks, Yuri. Now, uh, Nadja, can I turn to you? And uh, Nadja, it seems a long time ago now, but I can still vividly remember the first Sunday after George Floyd was murdered. Uh, there was a solidarity demonstration that was called in Trafalgar Square, and obviously that was that was in the very early months of the lockdown when almost everybody, Dominic Cummings being a very notable exception, of course, were being very disciplined, not traveling too far from home, maintaining social distancing, and so on. So when that demonstration was called, no one really knew what to expect. Uh, my partner and I, we we cycled there expecting there to be perhaps, you know, a few hundred people as we rode from Brixton in South London, where we live, it became increasingly obvious, just from the streets of people walking with placards, it was going to be much bigger than that. And in actual fact, there were, there were many thousands of people there and such was the, the energy, that it marched spontaneously the three miles from Trafalgar Square all the way down to the US Embassy where it remained for several hours. Now, I, I remember seeing you there. And in fact, you were one of the few people that I recognized such was the size of the demonstration. I wonder what, what is your recollection of those first few, that one and the first few really heady demonstrations that occurred?
2: Well, I think, you know, being on those marches that were tens of thousands strong, as you said, Brian, um, and really a movement that felt like you know, a diverse army with black generals, you know, you could really see how a whole generation has been radicalised by the last few years, you know, first with austerity and neoliberalism um, and more recently the pandemic. And, you know, people didn't just chant for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, and against police brutality. You know, people also demanded justice for Belly Majinga, the train ticket collector um, who died of COVID-19 after being spat at uh, by a passenger. Um, Nor did the movement forget about Grenfell um, when it hit the third anniversary of the fire in June. You know, people echoed um, Stormzy chanting, you know, where's the money for Grenfell? You know, what you saw on the marches and what, you know, from talking to people um, and being there, you know, was that actually there was a general recognition from the young people who'd taken to the streets that, you know, racism doesn't just operate through individuals and their decisions, you know, whether it's the Derek Chauvin's or the uh, Carl Rittenhouse's, you know, it's structured into the system. Um, and I think this is what made Black Lives Matter so radical and militant. Um, you know, a whole layer for a whole layer of people, you know, radicalized by a whole number of issues in society, you know, race is the key fault line that exposes everything that's wrong with the way things are.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So so that's a sense of the, the kind of mood and the spirit and the anger of the demonstrations. How do you think that the ideas in this pamphlet connect with the debates in the movement that have emerged?
2: Mm. Well, I think, you know, when you think back to a lot of the, you know, placards and the chants used on the uh, Black Lives Matter marches, you know, they often use the language um, of privilege to challenge and call out racism. Um, But at the same time, you know, lots of people recognise that The system is racist and that, you know, that that entrenchment um, of racism is what's the issue. Um, And I think it was that recognition um, that racism is systemic and runs much deeper in society than just the uh, individuals and the ideas in their heads. But I think, you know, made repeated throughout the movement, you know, whether that was on the demonstrations um, or in the activist meetings, that challenging racism can't just be a black fight. And I think, you know, the movement showed that in practice as well, you know, the marches and demonstrations, you know, were black and white, um, and not just left uh, for those who face racism to fight it. Um, And that's exactly what we need to overcome it, really. Um, But I think as well, it's worth saying that, you know, the scale and breadth of Black Lives Matter, um, couldn't have happened if white people had played an auxiliary role in the struggle, you know, you think about, how widely it spread both in the US um, and, you know, Britain, you know, something that wasn't just in the big uh, cities, um, like, for instance, in the United States, uh, not just in the big cities like Chicago, um, and New York, but actually, in some of the smaller uh, towns, um, and cities where there aren't very many um black people, um, and including in you know the sundown towns um of the south, which had a you know history of of segregation and so on. And you saw a similar dynamic um in Britain. There were the big marches in the city centres like London, Manchester, um Bristol, but at the same time, you know all across the country, people were taking uh, the knee from Orkney, you know, the uh, archipelago um, off the coast of Scotland to Haverford West um, in Wales, really. Um, Now, I think, you know, of course, you know, there's real questions going on um, about the role, for instance, you know, the role of white people in the movement or the relationship between different oppressions um, happening in the movement at the moment. But I think both discussions um, are incredibly important. And we can't really be shy about getting to grips uh, with these discussions and hearing people's experiences, you know, beyond the language that they use. Um, And really, I think, you know, there will be some people who will see racism as something that's either solely or primarily, you know, coming from white people and their inherent prejudices. Um, But there's also a whole layer of people within the movement who, you know, might talk about privilege, um, but will agree with you um, when you say that it's the system that's racist. Um, or that everyone needs to unite to fight racism. And I think the ideas of this pamphlet, you know, fit with uh, the ideas of the most radical people on the streets. And I think our job is relating to those people um, and winning them to a revolutionary strategy.
0: Thanks for that, uh, Nadja. Esme, can I turn to you now? So the pamphlet's called Does Privilege Theory Explain Racism? So I suppose I should ask you a fairly obvious question. What is privilege theory?
4: Yeah, thank you, Brian. I think, as Yuri said earlier on, um, privilege, talking about privilege can, for many people, be the beginning of really trying to understand how racism works and how it functions and how it affects people. So I think for white people, it can be a really useful way for people to start to think about some of the assumptions and things that they take for granted um, and to really think through how racism affects people and I think for those of us who face racism like all of us on this panel um, the ideas of privilege can sometimes make sense because for a lot of us well none of us really experience racism in the abstract at the hands of the capitalist system in general, but we experience it in our lives by decisions and actions taken by white people. Um, And I think as both Yuri and Nadia have alluded to, when many people talk about white privilege, they are really just using it in this way as a shorthand for racism. And I think when people use it like that, we have to say we are 100% on the side of people who are fighting against racism whatever terminology and whatever framework of reference they use so that's where we start from but there is a longer history um, to notions of privilege and this is why uh, we wrote this pamphlet to try and unpick some of that because there is an underpinning theory around privilege that can lead um, to some real political dead ends and the theory really emerged, as Yuri said, um, among academics and also among diversity trainers um, in the 1980s, uh, primarily in America, around a set of identity politics that was very much shaped at the time by kind of postmodern ideas. But it has spread much more widely now out of the academy and out of the specialist diversity trainers into much more mainstream discussion. Um, and really, just to kind of summarize what how privilege theory works. It is essentially the idea that oppression operates through bestowing unearned privileges on people who do not face discrimination or oppression. Um, One of the early kind of um, proponents of privilege theory, um, Peggy McIntosh, famously described privilege as an invisible knapsack. So she was considering her own position as a white woman and wrote, I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. So what she means is that privilege is like an invisible knapsack in that it's something that you carry around with you wherever you go, and you might not even be aware of having it, but it leads to all sorts of what she describes as privileges. She goes on to describe 50 effects of white privilege on her daily life. Um, Here's just a couple of them. She writes, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open the front page of the newspaper and see people of my race widely widely represented. I can be pretty sure of having my voice heard in a group in which I am the only member of my race. Um, I can be casual about whether or not to listen to another person's voice in a group in which she or he is the only member of his or her race. So in lots of ways, the sound, don't they, like... Um, descriptions of how racism works. Although you do have to kind of ask, should it really be described as a privilege to be able to go shopping without being harassed or to have people listen to you um, if you're speaking out in a group? These should really, in my view, be rights um, that everybody has not seen as somehow as a privilege. But behind this theory and this description of racism, there is really a theory, a deeper theory, about how oppression works and how it functions. And she goes on to explain it in this famous ep- um, uh, essay that she writes. She says, such privilege simply confers dominance. It gives permission to control because of one's race or sex. So there's a number of assumptions underlying this theory. Um, one is that there um, that all humans have an innate desire to dominate other humans, that this is something about human nature. Um, and also, that oppression is lodged in an individual's characteristics. They are therefore innate and not something that we can simply um, reject um, or simply, you know, um, get rid of or simply renounce, even. Um, and for most privileged theorists, certainly around questions of white privilege, racism is seen as flowing from whiteness itself, from the very fact um, of whiteness. Um, and even for privileged theorists who've the historical roots of racism, the theory really leads them to believing that all white people are complicit in, to some degree in racism as white people are all seen as beneficiaries of um, of white privilege of a racist society and people of course might be unaware that they have those privileges in fact a lot of the the writing and the training around privilege is around calling out people's privileges or about revealing unconscious biases Um, and it's also the case that obviously privilege is used to describe lots of different forms of oppression not just racism But and also lots of symptoms of oppression as well. Mm -hmm. So somebody can be privileged in one area and disadvantaged in others. So one of the things that privilege theory does is it seems to reduce all of us to a kind of sum of our privileges and our disadvantages. Um, And if you look online, you'll see there are endless checklists that you can go through to find out just how privileged you are. And so kind of these big systemic injustices that we're talking about today and that the movement is talking about today can end up being reduced to this kind of sum of individual privileges and disadvantages that each of us is is, is alleged to have under privilege theory.
0: So presumably we're all carrying uh, an invisible knapsack with, uh, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, a number of items in it, I suppose okay thanks for that that was that that was really really fascinating actually nadia let me turn back to you now and ask you given what we've just heard from from esme what from your perspective what are some of the limitations of privilege theory
2: well i want to draw out um two limitations really uh to privilege theory when it comes to um understanding um racism um you know, the first is that I think, you know, privilege theory, um, you know, naturalizes racism, you know, by rooting uh, racism in our psychology um, and something that's uh, inherent to being white, you know, privilege theory naturalizes racism. And as, as me said, you know, feeds into ideas of human nature and the natural instinct to dominate over those who are different. Um And by naturalizing racism in this way, um, when we know that race is a meaningless concept scientifically, you know, privilege theory makes racism an ahistorical phenomenon. You know, that is, you know, something that has always existed and so will always exist and therefore actually doesn't explain what existed before racism, how it came about um, or what can exist after it really. Now we know that race um, and racism didn't actually exist as a phenomenon for most of human history. Um, And it was in fact born out of the Atlantic slave trade as a means of justifying and operating the enslavement um, of people from Africa for their labor on on plantations. and racism has proven itself you know not just to be a useful tool but a flexible ideology for the ruling class you know enduring after slavery uh, through empire and colonialism as a mechanism of divide and rule um, and continuing to this day um, as a means of scapegoating um, and deflecting real anger in society um, away from the ruling classes themselves who are responsible um, But I think more than that, you know, more than robbing racism of its history, I think naturalising racism also robs it of the anti-racism and the history of struggle against it. Um, And actually, there is a rich history um, that's often hidden, um, not just of beating back racism, Um, but actually of workers making common cause with people against oppression. So, for example, um, the resistance from below against slavery didn't just come from slaves. You know, it also came from workers in countries that were immersed um, in the slave trade, particularly in Britain. So, for instance, um, workers in Britain boycotted uh, cotton and other goods um, coming out of the southern plantations, um, not just as consumers, um, but actually as workers in the mills like uh, in places like Manchester um, and Liverpool, which imported that cotton uh, from the racist south. Um, And this embargo meant that, You know, workers were actually sacrificing their own livelihoods, you know, in order to bring down the industries that were so central to the slave trade um, and deliberately doing that to weaken the slaveholding self uh, during the American Civil War. And I think it's important that we know these struggles because they not only show that uh, people can be broken from racist ideas, um, but they actually show that workers who don't experience racism can play a crucial role um, in challenging it. Um, Now, the second limitation that I wanted to draw out in privilege theory um, when it comes to understanding racism is that in focusing, you know, either primarily or solely um, on the individual, it ends up, you know, pointing away from the structural racism that exists in society. Um, Now on this, you know, I think we have to start by recognising that for the most part, you know, the way people um, experience racism is personal, you know, whether it's through individual encounters or treatment, you know, uh, whether it's uh, the judge, you know, harshly sentencing the police officer using excessive force, the employer who puts you first on the line uh, to be made redundant. Whatever it is, uh, you know, people, um, mostly, uh, people experience racism um, in a very personal um, and individual way. Um, but I think, you know, at the same time, you know, it becomes common sense again to reject the idea that racism is down to a few bad apples. You know, it's the whole basket that's infected um, and racism is actually structured into our society and its institutions. Um, and I think as Marxists, you know, we recognize that the personal and the structural racism Um, are not mutually exclusive from one another. There's actually a relationship between them. Um, but it's the structural racism that is the, ter- the determinant force, um, you know, the racism that's embedded into the structures um, and institution, you know, moulds people to fit a racist system um, and conditions them to uh, accept racist ideas. So um, to give an example, you know, when you think about the racism of the police, um, of course, there are individual police officers um, who go into the police force who hold racist ideas and so on Um, but the racism in the police isn't down to those few individuals you know whether uh, the racism in the police isn't down to um, individuals and what ideas they have you know whether an individual has racist ideas or not going into the police you know the racism is structured into the institution from the training um, and racial profiling um, to the, uh, you know, dismissal uh, dismissiveness uh, towards uh, black people and and minority communities and so on, Um, even to, you know, the discrimination um, that people face in the courts um, and under prosecution as well, all of these things, you know, uh, mould people go into the police um, to fit you know, uh, uh, the institution that is itself inherently racist. And I think it's not just institutions like the police uh, that have racism structured into it. You know, it's the whole society and system that the police operate in, which has racism structured into it. And I think the problem of seeing racism through um, an individual lens is that it stops us from actually understanding, you know, the mechanisms by which racism actually functions and, you know, where it comes from um, and therefore how we can fight it. That's why I think for us, you know, just challenging individual views and prejudices isn't enough. You know, it doesn't get at the root um, of the problem. Privilege theory instead, you know, locates and roots racism in the individual. Um, And if that individual doesn't face racism, um, not only can they never understand it, you know, they'll inherently hold some level um, of racism themselves, even if unwittingly, um, because they benefit from it. And the solution that comes out of that um, becomes a, a solution that is very individual, you know, that being black promotion um, and black advancement, whether that's into high offices in business, um, whatever. Um, and I think whilst we celebrate black representation in leadership and high positions, you know, it's been proven repeatedly that this is a strategy for liberation is at best limited um, you think about the election of Barack Obama, you know, he galvanized people around the vision of a more racially and socially equal society. Um, but despite those aspirations, you know, that what wasn't what was realized, you know, and as a consequence of Obama's uh, presidency, which in no way challenged institutional racism, the increasingly hostile immigration policies or uh, neoliberalism as a whole, you know, black people were worse off after his presidency. Um, or you think about in Minneapolis, um, where there is a black mayor and a black chief of police, um, yet none of this did anything to prevent the brutal murder um, of George Floyd um, four months ago. And so, you know, I agree with Angela Davis, you know, the activist and revolutionary that, you know, when the inclusion of black people into the machines of oppression is designed to make that machine work more efficiently, then it does not represent progress at all. And I think so long as institutions and the system racism is embedded in remains intact, you know, racism will uh, continue to persist, really, um, no matter how many of those individuals we change through um, or at the top of that system.
0: Yeah, thanks, Nadja. Whilst you were speaking, two things really struck me first when you were talking about the, some of the fantastic struggles that there have been against racism. It is of course October and therefore it's Black History Month, the, w- the one month in the year when we're allowed to celebrate black history and struggle. But it is important that we do that and let's hope that around the country that there's a whole series of fantastic events celebrating black history, black achievement and so on. The other thing of course what you were talking about Barack Obama and with a U.S. presidential election that is going on as we speak. A lot of the hope is being invested not in Joe Biden, but in his vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris, whose biography, The Truth We Hold, is very, a very interesting read because it reads very much like Barack Obama's in terms of you know, the way she talks about struggle, black communities, opposition to racism, support for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender rights and so on. But it reads very much like Obama's biographies in terms of placing so much faith in the concept of the American dream and the idea that if we do get black figures into positions of power and authority, then really radical change can happen anyway. Uh, I digress slightly. Let me, uh, just following on from what you said, let me ask, are there historical examples that you can think of that show these kind of ideas in practice?
2: Mm. Well, I think, you know, the ideas um, that I've outlined um, and the conclusions um, i' mentioned particularly that you know um, you know black faces in higher places um, as a strategy for liberation isn't quite what's going to cut it um, in the fight against racism i mean these were conclusions that were drawn um, at the end of the civil rights movement really between you know the mid 1960s and the late 1960s at a time when you know the south uh, number one was blowing up um, and washington would go no uh, further in the way of reforms um and this really made way for the Black Power movement that was to follow. Um, but another important backdrop to the emergence of the Black Power movement um, was the increasing spotlight um, and the growing strugg- uh, and the growing struggles um, in the North, where there was no segregation. Um, and what they highlighted really was that you know racism persists and continues to operate in society through things like ghettoization, uh, racial pay gra- uh, gaps, um, exclusion from services, um, and while Black people could be equal on paper. Um, in reality you know institutional racism maintains you know the subordination of black people um, in society Um, and I think you know Stokely Carmichael the Black Panther um, and revolutionary was among the people who recognized this you know in his uh, famous Black Power speech in 1966 you know he said that we cannot afford to be concerned uh, about the 6% of black children in this country whom you're allowed to enter into white schools. We're going to be concerned with the 94% who will never go to Berkeley, who will never go to Harvard and, will, and cannot get an education. In other words, um, what Carmichael was saying was while education may be desegregated, you know, institutional racism still divides and disadvantages uh, the overwhelming majority of black people. Um, and what was clear to Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers um was that you know it's again it's the system that is racist and this was the real, uh, the uh, starting point of the recent black lives matter movement um which i think is what made it so uh, radical and promising really um you know that and I think really, if we want to um, overcome that system uh, with its racism and oppression, um, then working, uh, then mobilising the working class is absolutely going to be key. Um, we've seen already the beginnings and we'll see a lot more, you know, uh, mass unemployment um, on our way. And you, we know that the crisis will be hitting black and white working class people the hardest, you know with more cuts uh, to services and welfare, um, people losing their jobs, people losing their homes and prospects. Um, and so we know that actually, you know, struggle will happen. Um, but whether it's one that fuses, you know, the energy and vitality of Black Lives Matter, you know, with the real class uh, anger in society is not something that's automatic. Um, But instead, you know, a political question. Um, And I think revolutionary socialists, you know, need to be part of these movements and are part of these movements um, that need to be in order to uh, draw, you know, from from these struggles and and, uh, um, movements, you know, draw them to their most radical conclusions um, in order to overcome racism um, and the system that it's embedded in.
0: And it was, of course, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton who first coined the term institutional racism to describe the way that it's structured into the, uh, the, the institutions of society, wasn't it? Yuri, let me bring you back in at this point. So privilege theory seems to be based on the idea that all white people benefit from racism. How would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, I think it's certainly true that many anti-racists believe that in some way this is true. Um, They look at the ways that racism impacts the lives of black and Asian people, and they see how different that is from the way white people experience the world. And they draw the conclusion that white people have more because black people have less. But acknowledging the difference and understanding the reason for the difference are two separate things um for example it's absolutely true that black workers on the whole earn less than white workers that they face uh, discrimination on the job are far less likely to be promoted and they are most often found in the most dangerous and least well-regarded roles in society and if you think about what those kind of roles are the care sector has to be a prime example uh, of that And the real question is, who is to blame for this situation? Is it the white care worker who's earning around 18,000 pounds a year, doing shift work without adequate PPE, but maybe earning slightly more than someone who's on the very bottom rung, maybe someone who's cleaning uh, uh, and doing domestic work in, in 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 a care home setting. Is that white worker really an example of privilege? Are they complicit in holding the black worker back? I mean, individually, in specific cases, perhaps. But in general, no, that can't be the explanation for why so many black workers find themselves at the bottom of the pile and the last to be promoted and the first to be fired. Um, The reality is it's the care home managing directors who are able to make use of the racial divisions to set workers against each other that are the real beneficiaries. Turning workers into competitors is has the effect of stopping them becoming allies the boss pays the white worker slightly more and dangles before them the possibility of promotion in order to promote divide and rule and that's an age-old colonial strategy uh, one that's undergone some modification but that's where it stems from by making no distinction between the interests of the white worker and the interest of the white boss Privileged theory can't really give us an answer beyond saying that all white people are are in some way to blame or in some way the beneficiaries from from this system. I mean, there's lots of evidence to say that the boss's strategy of using racism works. Uh, It works for them on their terms. Workers who are divided on racial lines or ethnic lines or any other lines really are far less likely to come together to fight for what's in their mutual interest. They are therefore much weaker. And the consequence of that is that all workers lose out. Of course, it's true black workers lose out the the, the most. Of course, it's true that black workers suffer the most, but all workers are limited by racism in in respect of their organization. It's very difficult to fight when you're seeing each other as the reason why you have to work longer hours and get lower pay. If we blame each other, we can't be blaming blaming the boss. And that uh, really leads to benefits for for the bosses, who are, by the way, of course, uh, overwhelmingly overwhelmingly white. And Yuri, in the pamphlet, you consider this idea
0: of a deliberate divide and rule policy, and you do it by looking back at the ideas of the black radical W.E.B. Du Bois. Can you tell us some more about him and his explanation of racism?
1: Yes, du-, du Bois was a brilliant historian, uh, a commentator, an analyst and an activist um, in the United States in the 19th and 20th, uh, 20th centuries. Um, he really wanted to understand the function of racism and why, where it got its appeal from, particularly in the period after the the US Civil Civil War and the construction thereafter of the segregated South. Um, he describes the advantages that the ruling class bestowed upon some white workers in the wake of the Civil War as being more psychologically important than they were materially important. So he talks about bosses' attempt to make white workers feel privileged, that they were part of an elite group of whiteness, along with the people who actually did run society. You know, the, the judges, the landlords, the mill owners uh the police and so on it, you know it's offering to white workers who are amongst the poorest to say well you may be poor you may be living in a shack but you're part of an elite group you know you know you're part of the same club as the judges uh, uh, and the industrialists uh and du Bois says this is all a ruse this is a strategic device designed to fool poor whites into thinking that they were cherished by their betters and this is what he says he says the theory of race was supplemented by a carefully planned and slowly evolved method, which drove such a wedge between white and black workers that there were probably not uh, are not today in the world, two groups of workers with practically identical interests who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently, and who are kept so far apart that neither see anything of common interest. So in a really important phrase, uh, uh, which, He he, he uses and the key point in the phrase for me is practically identical interests. What Du Bois is saying is that despite all the petty advantages given to white workers, it is still the case that it's in the interest of both black and white workers to fight together. He's saying no matter what the, the gap between the two, the gap between the two is nothing compared to the gap between workers and the rich. That's the real big gap in society. And to close it, it can only be closed if black and white workers can fight together. And so those, you know, those are the most essential lessons that we learn from Du Bois. And we're 100 years on from his thinking uh, uh, and, and his writing. Um, but I think that this remains as powerful and relevant as as the day he wrote it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much for that, Yuri. I want to move on now and consider some of the other Debates that are raised in the pamphlet. And I want, Ken, if I can bring you in at this point. Mm -hmm. Ken, the issue of race and identity has long been a hot topic. I remember the, the former Guardian journalist, Gary Young, writing a book called Who We Are and Should It Matter in the 21st Century, 10 years ago. And the current Guardian columnist, Afua Hirsch, her book, British, has been a bestseller over the last couple of years and has really rocketed back up the charts in recent months. And indeed, one of the questions that have been raised by one of the, the hundreds of people who are on This broadcast has been from Agent De Leon. He says, what is your reaction to the widely asked question that framing events through identity politics is actually causing more divide than unity, which is needed to combat an oppressive capitalist system? So, Ken, why do you think that questions of race and identity are so important?
5: Well, um, Ryan, well, I think that experiencing your own cultural identity is vital for oppressed people in developing self-confidence. And I don't think it's surprising that people um want to defend uh, an idea of uh, a politics based around their own identity. Uh, Because we live in a society where uh, a lot of people, black people in particular, see uh, their identities suppressed and put down all the time. Uh, And I think that one of the things that's amazing about the way people have resisted is the way that this, identities cultural identities often relate to resistance you just need to think about the way that uh, music has developed um, over the past century black music from grime back through hip-hop reggae soul rock jazz blues and spirituals have all been linked to developing an identity of resistance and i think that that's important because the idea of a cultural identity is not that there's some fixed thing, an unchanging thing uh, that you live by. What you actually have is an experience uh, which changes. Your identity changes as the world changes around you. Um, And I mean, that doesn't mean that your identity is simply a choice, uh, but it's something that um, is partly imposed and partly controlled. It's something that I can choose. I mean, for instance, in my position, my my father's a black African, my, mo- uh, my mother's white English, I grew up um, in London. Uh, that means that I have ties in a whole number of different places and a lot of people from immigrant backgrounds do have situations like that um, and it creates an identity but it's not a one unchanging identity and it's difficult sometimes to talk about what we're sharing so for instance I have ties to my father's village in Kenya but my identity my experience of life is not the same as villagers who are living there neither is it the same, the same as um, people who live in um, Nairobi where my- but of my family lives in the capital of Kenya. Um, nor is it the same as the white family who were East Enders, many of whom have moved out into suburban London. Each of these are different bits of identity. identity and I think that those identities develop through uh, your experience some of these things are absolutely concrete such as the way that often people are told uh, people of African descent are told that African hair is messy or that dark skin is ugly these things are simple racism but other things that come out of identity uh, come from other um other ways of looking at things so for instance um ways of saying that there are certain right ways uh, to behave if you come from a social, social a certain background um talking about books that have come out recently this is particularly well covered in um akala's book uh, natives uh, which is very strong on a, a lot of the, these issues that um that there might be different right ways to behave the right way to be uh, a black person in london uh if you're living in uh, a working class area might be very different uh, from the way a black person would depend uh, behave in jamaica new york or texas um and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way uh, to fight back against um, uh, over these um, over these issues by just by asserting your identity. It's by working out who are the people who work uh, with you together. I'd like to uh, agree with what uh, Nadia was saying before about uh, some of the people who are high up who might come from a certain uh, similar cultural background um, do not necessarily have things in in common. For instance. Um, Barack Obama, um, his African father comes from the same tribe as me. But when he came to be the leader of the free world, it didn't actually benefit uh, me in particular. And if you look at other people, a particularly good example to look at at the moment is uh, is Priti Patel. Uh, Priti Patel um, will experience racism. She will have experienced racism. But frankly, she's on the other side now. Um, And this is For me, one of the great things about the Black Lives Matter movement has been precisely that, the idea, return of the idea of solidarity, that white people and people from different um, ethnic backgrounds can come together. And this really answers the question that comes up, is it divisive for people? to talk about their oppression about black lives Mattering, and so on i don't think it is because actually it strengthens all of us when we can start seeing how oppression works in society how you can fight against that that makes everyone confident and that's one of the reasons why i think there's so many uh white people and so on have uh been able to uh take part in black lives matter uh movements the only uh, people who are Actually, doing something divisive is uh, the people who talk about um, White Lives Matter, like the bizarre actor um, Lawrence Fox, who's going on about uh, boycotting uh, Sainsbury's today because it's supporting Black Lives Matter. Uh, that that is the other thing. But on on our side, I think it's been something that's really strengthening.
0: And so you've talked primarily there about the identity of the oppressed people who face racism in particular. What about the right? What about Trump, for example? Don't they also they appeal to a, a right wing version of identity politics?
5: Uh, they certainly do. Um, I think um, even people who've been Trump watchers over the um, over the years will be perhaps surprised by how he supported the fascist proud boys uh, mm. and was uh, looking to them as someone who could take on the uh, take on the left but is this really the same um as uh, the, the kind of identity that we've been talking about so far i, I don't think so i think that there's something very positive about people asserting their identity in the face of oppression uh, which is very different uh, from what, frankly, we'd call this white pride movement is, which is a movement which is not about um, asserting an identity. It's about putting down someone else. And this doesn't mean, incidentally, that there are lot of poor white people who aren't oppressed, who haven't got lots of reasons to be angry. But the truth is, when they side with um, people like Trump, when they start looking uh, for their identity in the, what they are um, aligning with uh, the rich and often racist fascists and so on, they're actually weakening themselves in the way that that Yuri talked about in, in, in the previous section. Because whatever Trump says, black culture is not about hating white people. It's about a, a culture of resisting. And as I started out with, I think one of the exciting things about that is that cultures of resistance tend to be very creative.
0: And Esme, just perhaps a word from you as well, adding perhaps to what what Ken has said, and picking up on the question that was raised by Adrian deLeon in the chat, what, what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of organising against racism on the basis of identity?
4: Yeah, thank you, Brian. I think this is a really interesting discussion. And I think we have to say there are undoubted strengths um, and real potential um, in organising on the basis of identity. And we shouldn't ignore that, both the potential to win real change. You think about Um, the high point of the anti-racist struggle I think in America with the Black Panthers for example or the whole of the Black Power movement Uh, but also as Ken talked about I think the ability of movements like the Black Power movement or you could talk about if you want to talk about other forms of oppression you could talk about something like the Gay Liberation Front something that organises on the basis of a particular identity or even Black Lives Matter today can actually change our sense of identity in itself. You know, I think about the the whole concept of black is beautiful, that the, the whole how it feels to be black um, or Asian or um, oppressed in any other way has changed massively through the mass movements um, that have fought for change. I think about the uh, wonderful letter that James Baldwin wrote to Angela Davis when she was in prison um, explaining just what uh, profound impact the movement that she was part of had had on his own sense of self and how like millions of other black people James Baldwin was brought up to feel that he should despise himself and his family and other black people and how that was transformed through that mass movement but you know movements like that aren't just about changing ourselves they also force can force real change um from the state and they can really you know Put things on the agenda in the way that the black lives matter movement has now so i think we should always start by defending identity politics both from the right wing um, and from people who just don't want to see a fight against oppression at all but also from some people on the left who um, seem to suggest that any politics based on identity or that focuses on challenging oppression are somehow a distraction from some sort of pure economic class struggle in in reality Race and class are absolutely inextricably linked in the way um, in which we've talked about and which I hopefully will talk a little bit more about in a minute. But there are limitations um, to just organising on the basis of identity. And I think there are problems that we need to work through. The the most obvious thing for me, I guess, is that just organising on the basis of a shared identity doesn't replace the need for strategy because actually organising... On the basis of a shared identity could lead to lots of different strategies and we 've seen that with the anti racist struggle um, you know and actually, just saying we have the same identity can sometimes obscure the differences um, in strategy you know just thinking about strategies um, of fighting racism based on being black or being Asian or being people of color just grouping people together on the basis of identity. You can have a strategy that is about um, black faces in high places that we've already talked about. You can have a strategy that is about developing black capitalism. We should only shop at black businesses or we should only shop at Asian businesses, whatever the particular dynamics of that are. Or you can have the sort of radical challenge to capitalism that we saw with the black panthers you know there are all we can see you know a whole radical history of black workers in struggle there's a whole range of strategies so just having one shared identity doesn't overcome the need to find a strategy and you've also got to say what are the goals of a particular movement. There's a really interesting point that Assad Haider makes in his uh, really excellent book, Mistaken Identity, where he argues that unless we're explicit about challenging the limits of capitalism, identity politics can actually encourage us to see oppression through the lens of individual disadvantage in lots of the ways that we've talked about with privilege theory, actually. But that involves then demanding inclusion in society Uh, eliminating that disadvantage based on a norm that is a white middle class male within an exploitative capitalist system. So we've also got to think, are we arguing for incorporation and equality within this system or are we arguing for genuine liberation? And I know that we'll talk more about strategies, but we can see from America that the inclusion of more black people into, into positions of power doesn't change the system. I think Nadia spoke about this really well. If, if anything, it changes the people. Um, it certainly doesn't change the system. So there are lots of problems that you have to work through, I think, um, as well, with the question of organising on the basis of identity. Um, and you have to try um, and make visible some of the things that it obscures, like the class differences that exist among black and Asian people, just as they do among white people.
0: And of course, as me, we should remember that race is itself a social construct, even though racism, of course, itself is very real. Does that affect how we should think about identity politics?
4: I think that's a very important point that you raised there, Brian, because I think one of the potential problems with identity politics is that it can try and make uh, makes, makes solid, it can essentialise something that is really fluid and socially constructed in all the ways that Ken talked about. And that's not just in terms of blackness. I think you can also see that in terms of who gets to be defined as white, which has also changed over time. And we talk about this in the pamphlet. Um, In colonial Hispanic America, for example, being white was actually a financial transaction. You could pay, if you had the money, for a certificate to say that you were white. So, you know, the the way in which these racial categories change and are constructed um, is a political act in itself. But in terms of organising on the basis of identity today, this obviously raises the question of authenticity, which I think Ken also alluded to. Who gets to decide who is in and who is out of any particular identity. Identities are contested. And there's also the question of who gets to choose the so-called community leaders, because it's not always the community or the genuine grassroots community that get to decide those things. Sometimes it's the most um, articulate or middle-class elements of a particular oppressed community. Sometimes it is the people that the government or whatever state body it is feel that they can be doing business with. Um, And I think with authenticity comes um, a focus on the primacy of experience, that idea that Nadia talked about, that only people who can experience something can really understand it or combat it. And given that none of us really have the exact same experiences, uh, this can potentially lead to fragmentation within the movement. And I think you can see an example of that if you look at the history of anti-racism in Britain and the way in which black really became to be used as a political term in the 1970s for everyone who was fighting against racism, for black and Asian people and other um, minority people of other uh, minority ethnicities who were fighting against racism. But that unity really broke down and it broke down primarily after the Brixton riots in 1981, when Thatcher's Tory government set about really encouraging the fragmentation of that identity by um, encouraging different ethnicities to bid for funding for ethnic projects um, to compete for money and recognition. So you saw then a divide, not just between Black and Asian, but within Asian, between Pakistani um, and Indian and Bangladeshi. Um, And I think one of the things you've got to think is neoliberalism can really live with this sort of market based identity politics of that sort. And I think we've really got to think about what are identities that are forged in struggle rather than identities that are sponsored by the state and based on kind of market and neoliberal forces. I think it's something we should always have in our minds when we're thinking about what sort of identities can take us forwards in the struggle.
0: Thanks very much for that, uh, Esme. Elizabeth, you've been very patient. (laughs) Let me bring you in at this point and let me ask you this. How do you think that these questions of identity relate to debates that are happening today around blackness and who is defined as black?
6: Yeah, I think it's actually a really important question, Brian, because actually the contestedness of blackness is actually quite prominent in the debates at the moment Um, and these are actually quite difficult conversations about deciding what is black the essence of actually who can call themselves black being contested is actually quite challenging and I'll start by saying actually I think these are healthy things I think movements challenge our ways of thinking and debates are allowed to happen Um, but we have to think about actually does the question of who is black help the movement? Because there are a few important factors to consider, and you touched on this briefly, Esme, but actually race is, in simplistic terms, a social construct. It was invented as a way of classically, um, of a cultural classification, actually, dividing people um, along lines of features and physical attributes. It actually doesn't follow any sort of biological logical terms. And so when you start dividing whole populations, it can feel so restrictive. And these restrictions don't just extend to actually terms of race and biology, they actually extend to our language and what words we use to describe Blackness. So whether that's BME or people of colour, these terms can feel so limiting and really outdated. But the question of Blackness runs slightly deeper. We must remember that actually racism isn't static, um, it changes and it evolves time and time again. Historically, we saw the shift of racism from the transatlantic slave trade evolve into racism of colonialism. And that has led to a change in racism as we know it today. And that's taken on many different forms. Um, if we begin on this sort of road of saying only people of black, Um, African and Caribbean heritage, like myself, um, face racism, we actually ignore many ways and the new targets that have been created under the new racist strategies. Right, if you take it back to 9-11 and think about actually how the treatment of Muslims across the world changed after that event. There was vile rhetoric, there was hate crimes, countless police um, harassments and shootings, and actually there was a general overwhelming fear-mongering Um, and radicalization that has become actually really embedded in some of our sectors like the education system. And so for me, it's actually beyond clear that Islamophobia is a form of racism. And so if I think about Britain, whether it was the anti-racism we saw in the 80s and the 90s, or today, the current treatment of refugees under the hostile environment, these struggles must be our struggles too. And I don't think we can just ignore them on the basis of whether these people are black or not. And as we touched on this again, um, historically in the anti-racist movement, black has been used as a political term to include people of African, Caribbean, but also Asian backgrounds. It's actually a way of uniting people who face racism. And we see this actually still upheld today in certain sectors, like trade unions will continue to use the word black to describe these people. On the contrary, you actually have people thinking about who does get to decide who is black or not. And I talk about those of us who are of African heritage, but that actually can be contested too. some people will argue that those from people from countries like Mali, Sudan, Somalia, despite actually being in East Africa aren't truly black or aren't black enough, but does quantifying blackness really push the movement or is it creating divisions? And I think it's something to be aware of, because divisions are a divide and rule tactic that has been used for oppressors for centuries. Even when we think of fairly new discussions being talked about, whether it's colorism, or actually, where do people of mixed heritage have a role in fighting racism? We think of these as new discoveries, but these actually stem from common tactics that I think slave masters use to divide slaves on their labour, whether that was for the field, for the house, or legacies as such things as the brown paper bag test. Our oppressors have actually found a way, and they have a very interested way, in dividing us and isolating us within our experiences, and actually distracting us from recognising that the root of all racism lies in the rotting system of capitalism. It's not human nature, there is no racist biological gene, it is systematic. Systematic. Sorry. And that's why I'm personally far more interested in us uniting all those who experience racism in our struggles, And it's absolutely true, as it's been said quite a few times ago, we all experience racism in very different ways. But I do think there is a balance. I think there is a way to acknowledge that and also deal with the root cause. And so, in my opinion, whatever colour, creed, job, gender, um, age, I want people fighting racism. And this is because i don't think it's one identities or one racist problem or responsibility black people can't do it on our own and actually we shouldn't have to we all benefit from eradicating the systems that uphold racism and that's not only should unite us but actually that should give us so much confidence to know that the fight against racism can win
0: fantastic thank you very much for that elizabeth um we should be drawing towards our conclusion. So let me throw another question back to you, Elizabeth. You say that we should be, you know, fighting. Uh, we want a fight against racism can win. So what sort of politics do you think we do need if we're going to win?
6: Yeah, this is sort of like the million dollar question that everyone's asking, isn't it, Brian? Um, and I think quite simply, the politics that we need to win the fight against racism is a united mass movement that is radical it's revolutionary and it's anti-capitalist at its core. And I don't think those are the only three things, but I actually think those are the main three things. And I'll begin with radical, because actually the road to anti-racism is not going to be an easy walk in the park, actually. It's going to be challenging, it's going to be demanding, it's going to be exhausting at times and uncomfortable. Why? Because racism is so embedded into our ways of life and how society itself functions and we are living in times of deep crisis and we know this and we can feel this, but actually it's in these times where we need to be bold. It's not time for us to be asking for equality, it's time actually for us to be demanding it because no one is going to give it to us on a silver platter. And if we wait to make changes when the environment feels less divisive, we will always fall short. It's when ordinary people actually unite and fight back, there's actually no telling or bounds of what we can achieve. And that's why we must be revolutionary which can often feel quite abstract, actually, because we don't live in a world where life before racism is in living memory. But change has got to come from more than just reforms and parliamentary politics. Now, don't get me wrong, I will support and defend any anti-racism bill or legislation we get, but that's actually just the start. It's not the end. Like many people have said in this call, black faces in higher places won't rid racism of its own. Nadia outlined it excellently, I thought. And actually, it is true. If black faces in high places worked, there is no reason why America should not have been radically transformed after Obama's eight years of um, administration. It's quite simple, though. You can't just reform institutional racism. It must be uprooted completely. And we don't need a system that is just polished up. We need a system to be broken down. And it's institutional racism that provides the environment for racism and biases to be learned behaviors and to stay unchallenged. And so in order to root the very devastating and sometimes deadly effects of racism, we must get rid of it in our institutions. That's our healthcare, that's our education, that's our judicial system, policing, arts and so much more. But the issue is this doesn't suit the agenda of those few who make the profit out out of the system the way it is. And that's why we must be anti-capitalism, because capitalism is driven by profits. It was the profit that drove the birth of the transatlantic slave trade. And it was the transatlantic slave trade that birthed racism as we know it today. It was profit that was made during the slave trade, that spurred the world into industrialization, that created new economic structures, many of which are still here today. And it was the wealth that was made of black bodies, hoarded across the seas, beaten and abused at the Held the West into its superpower status and that's why it was so hard to fight for the abolition of slavery and that's why colonisation still exists because exploitation is far too profitable to let go. So I don't think you can have a world without oppression when profit is still on the agenda and I don't think you can trust that system actually to rid itself of the crises it causes and, and continues to actually uphold. And I think it's not taught in our schools, but there is a long history of people fighting back against racism. You think of the slave revolts in Haiti and Jamaica, where slaves actually took agency over their own lives. It was these slave rebellions that freedom. In the UK, actually, we've got a long history of anti-racist traditions. When we think about today's the anniversary of the Battle of Cable Street, the Battle of Leadership, Rotting Hill riots. These weren't just about black faces in higher places or more representation of our TV screens. These were movements from below. These were working class movements, and they were about the collective power and strength that we have when we come together and understand actually that we must fight back. And that understanding, that's the politics that I think will win against racism. And it's a politics of revolutionary socialism.
0: Thank you very much for that, Elizabeth. Well, last, but by no means least, Let me bring in someone who I'm proud to have stood alongside and call a comrade for over 30 years now. Wayman Bennett. Wayman has been a leading figure in the fight against racism for decades now. So Wayman, uh, where do we go now for the movement and where do we go now for socialists? And where does the struggle go?
3: Firstly, I think that's a brilliant introduction by the authors. and and, and by the activist that spoke about what it means for us today. Marx said, philosophers have interpreted the world, the point however, is to change it. And what we are talking about is the experience of every change that's taken place, has taken place a high point of struggle and revolution. 1789, the Haitian Revolution, read CLR James on the Haitian Revolution, it said matching between the French Revolution and what those ideals meant to the slaves on the ground and beating every army that came against them, the French, the British, the Spanish, and defeating them and destroying them. When people talk about Marxism, and they talk about it as an understanding, we can explain our world. We also have to act on it, and we need a, guardi- a guide to it. And the reason why we're unraveling these things is because we have to win. And when I talk about the high points, 1789, immediate 1968, attempt the rise of Black Panthers and the civil rights movement, the 1930s, the struggles that took place there, between those times. Each time we've confronted this question of racism. They've mentioned many of the authors, they were dealing with this conundrum. How do you cut this ground of your experience of racism and connect it to the most radical ends? The first thing is to say is no compromise, no flim flam, no compromise with the system by any means necessary. It's not true that liberation was done by being nice. Liberation was done by people fighting. To be honest, it was by struggle. And the history of this movement includes people like um, William Cuffrey, who was a chartist. Uh, When people talk about struggle, they always pretend that the working class at its height of the struggle was not united. And what's special about this universal class is that we experience life differently, but collectively we have the question of power that comes to it. That's what a strike does. That's actually what a revolt does. That's what a riot does. That's why people are right to riot against things, because... Um, as as, As Martin Luther King said, it's the voice of the unheard. It's the reason why the black movement has to take to the streets. But it also has to talk about the question of collective power. The other question that's very important is the question of leadership. You see, I remember Trevor Phillips being the head of something called the Commission for Racial Equality. In fact, racism didn't get abolished. He abolished the Commission for Racial Equality. He was a member of the Labour Party at the time, together with Tony Blair that led a racist war. At the same time, do abolish the means to be able to do it. He's a black face in high places, read about and write about the Windrush generation. These people are embedded and supported, hired prize fighters for the people at the top of our society who do benefit from racism. For us, I'm, I'm arguing something very simple. What works is a question of fighting today, building against the racists and the fascists, against Trump versus other people. And it matters. It matters that the BMP is defo- defeated. It matters that the English Defense League is defeated, that open, naked racism can't come and easily hegmanize. And I believe that's done by Trotskyism, by the maximizing of, of, of theory and practice, but there's something else that everybody's raised here, Elizabeth and Nadia, and that's the question of revolutionary process. For us, we are for fighting for those reforms, but we also are for change. And this system, as Marx talks about, right from the beginning, he said it was based on the entombment, enslavement, of the indigenous people and the beginning of the the plunder of India and the conversion of Africa into the preserve of the commercial hunting of black skins, all characteristics of the dawn of capitalism of production. In other words, it's not an accident, it's systemically written into its DNA. And that's why we have to talk about unraveling it. And revolution is two processes. When people go through revolution, they change. Toussaint who led the Haitian revolution, was a slave, but he became a leader in the process of the revolution. If you look at people like Claude McKay, who was one of the black leaders at the time who supported the Bolshevik Revolution, read about C.L.R. James. He wrote the book, The Haitian Revolution, under the bombs, as he said, he could hear the guns of Franco taking place. We have this choice, barbarism or socialism in front of us. And the road to it requires organized leadership in a multiracial party that understands that we wish to destroy the system. It doesn't start from, we want we want to change the system but we do have to understand who's on our side and who's not who benefits and who loses and what is the power that can change things and that's the reason why i want people to join the socialist workers party brian and i have been in the socialist workers party for 30 years and uh, to, to be honest i've worked with many people from the labor party i've worked with many people in united fronts But at the end of the day, we have to have a different vision. We have to remember why they murdered Hugh P. Newton, why they murdered Malcolm X, why they destroyed the Black Panthers, because they didn't want fundamental change. They wanted Obama, they wanted partial change, but they didn't want fundamental change. We have to work for fundamental change if we want to get rid of racism. Black lives will only matter when you start to unravel some of the uh, system. And the final thing about it is something that's very important. When workers struggle, they're always told you don't matter. Have you got a PhD? Can you explain? Do you understand whatever it is and whatever it is? There's a difference between the socialist workers party. It doesn't start from what school you went to, what university you went to, whatever it is. It starts from the university of the question of how you organise struggle in order to change society. We're the angriest people in the world. We're angry about racism, sexism, homophobia, the destruction of the environment. But we're not just angry, we're organised. We're philosopher warriors. We intend to fight to change this world. And if you want to change the world and not just accept it, then join us. Because for us, there is no compromise with the system, but we are prepared to work with anybody who wants to fight racism, but we have to organise to overthrow it. So that's in the book goes through all those, the pamphlet goes through all those careful ideas. But remember the high points lead to real change, the the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the struggles in the 30s, the 60s, the 70s, the end of apartheid, all the heights of the movement. We have been to the mountaintops, but we fundamentally have to get rid of the system if we want fundamental change to get rid of racism and all the disgusting things that go with it. So I'll stop there um, and, and, and say to people, please join the SWP. We're one small group, we need to be bigger, but we're part of the question of the working class being the solution. Uh, solidarity and uh, unity in the fight for a uh, a better society. Get rid of Trump, fight Boris, join the SWP.
0: Thank you for those inspirational words, Wayman. And thank you to all of our panellists, to Esme, to Yuri, to Ken, to Nadia and to Elizabeth. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. And you can continue, please do continue to share the details of this broadcast to your friends, your family, your work base, people in your community on YouTube, Twitter, etc. Because it is going to be available and it has been, as Rob quite rightly says in the chat, an absolutely brilliant discussion. And if you want to know more about it, you want to follow it up, then please do buy a copy of the pamphlet Does Privilege Explain Racism, which is published by Bookmarks. And let me say a few words about bookmarks, because I'm delighted to announce that this flagship independent socialist bookshop is now open again. So if you are in London, you can pop in and browse and buy some of the extensive range of books, pamphlets, newspapers and gifts that it has to offer. If you're not in London, then you can log on to the website, the address, which I think is on your screen below, and have a look at its catalogue, order the pamphlet and some of the other items it has available online. I want to say something also about Socialist Worker, the newspaper of the Socialist Workers Party. Every week, Socialist Worker is written, published and distributed across the length and breadth of Britain. That's difficult enough at the best of times for a radical socialist paper that doesn't have the backing of multi-millionaire media moguls or a big trust, but is instead funded by ordinary working-class people. It's even more difficult in the midst of a pandemic, and yet socialist workers, fantastic team of journalists have continued to produce the paper week after week, sharing stories from workplaces and communities, putting forward the argument that we're not all in it together and demanding that the needs of people are put before profit. Every year we have an appeal to support socialist worker. This year, I would argue, is more important than ever. We know that none of you are tycoons and many of you will have been suffering financially yourselves during this pandemic pandemic but please do dig deep and give what you can to help keep this fantastic newspaper going again the details are available on your screen and finally let me just echo what Wayman said in his conclusion the socialist workers party is trying to build a network of socialists that can intervene in the struggles in every town city village workplace, college and university in the country. This pandemic, the vile extremism of people like Donald Trump, the climate crisis, all of these have given us a horrible glimpse of what the future could be like, the barbarism that lies in wait. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can build a better future. And if you agree with us, then come and join us details again of how to join the socialist workers party are on the screen below thank you for tuning in and stay safe